Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Chelsea FC owner Roman Abramovich is sanctioned by the UK government. What does that mean for the club's future? Elsewhere, it's a magnificent night in the Champions League for Real Madrid as they come from two goals down to go past Paris Saint-Germain, inspired by Karim Benzema. We'll talk about our favourite veterans in football history. We'll also discuss the future for Manchester United's Marcus Rashford after reports he wants to leave the club over a lack of playing time. This is The Game. Hello and welcome back to The Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wozencroft today alongside Tom Clark, who's in London, Thomas Roddy, who's in Seville, and Ian Hawkey, who joins us from Madrid after what was a sensational game in the Champions League last night. And that is where I think we must begin as football lovers. Real Madrid beating Paris Saint-Germain by three goals to one. An incredible comeback from 2-0 down on aggregate. And I want to do this, gentlemen, chronologically because there was a period in that game where it was all about Paris Saint-Germain, you know, getting past Real Madrid, led by Kylian Mbappe, whose future is in Spain, and suddenly all changed. And it was a complete and utter meltdown. And before we get to that meltdown, I just want to give 30 seconds, Ian, to mention another brilliant goal from Kylian Mbappe because it's going to be all about slamming his side from this point on. Yeah, uh, wonderful goal. Uh, He could have had two by a similar route even before that. Um, And a wonderful goal if you were in charge of the Paris Saint-Germain project because there was Neymar with a beautiful first-time ball playing exactly to Kylian Mbappe's strengths, sidestepped David Alaba brilliantly gave Thibaut Courtois, who has been excellent across these these two games, the eyes and, and slammed in a beautiful finish. Yes, absolutely going to script at that stage. <laughs> and then it was all meltdown. A 17-minute hat-trick from Karim Benzema. What happened to Paris Saint-Germain? Tell us about being there, what you were seeing in. Well, it, 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 the atmosphere was was fabulous. And, and there's a bit of a context here because... We've basically Real Madrid have had two years of not having the Bernabeu as as it is traditionally. First of all, because of lockdown, and also because it's being developed. Now it's still being developed, so there was only sixty thousand there, but that's but that's a lot more than they've had for since March twenty twenty. And boy, were they up for it! They were they were up for it even when they were trailing two 0 which was quite a long time during the game. And you know, Paris Saint-Germain players are, are, are used to hostile atmospheres, but but it really was rousing, and I and I think for the Madrid players, it it, it was quite something. So so that was helpful, and and obviously you know this is this this is now going to become one of the great epics, and and you know Madrid really cultivate this idea of being the club of great comebacks, and there, you know there are quite a few over history. 
yeah, I mean, it, they were talking about the, the remontada, the comeback, even before the game began. And, and yeah, they, they actually, you know, they, they ended up having the script they wanted. You mentioned the remontada. Um, I think for a lot of people across Europe and across the world, watching Paris Saint-Germain over the past five or six years, yes, they've made it through to a Champions League final. They were beaten by Bayern, of course. But generally speaking, they have failed to deliver. Um, and I wondered whether you watching them agree with that history and have any reasons for why it seems to um, be reoccurring. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 we can now say it is, it is rather habitual. Go back to, to Demba Bar scoring for Chelsea in a quarterfinal very late on. Then an, an absolutely spectacular collapse against Barcelona when they were 4 0 up from the first leg and, and managed to lose overall. And of course, Manchester United did them in the last minute, having trailed by two goals after the first leg. So, you know, this is, this is a habit. And so if it, if it is a habit, then, you know, you have to diagnose it as, as, as something chronic. Now, there's no reason why Lionel Messi should, you know, should be vulnerable to this sort of thing or Neymar for that matter. So, then I guess, you know, it, it is something to do with the, the club's sense of its self-belief and maybe that's not helped with managers changing all the time. But, but yeah, they were overawed and, and, you know, certainly Madridistas would say, well, they were partly overawed with by our glorious history last night. But, yeah, it, it's, it's systemic. Champions League is, is a very difficult competition for, for clubs who haven't won it before to win. You know, Chelsea had to wait quite a long time once they came into money. Manchester City's still waiting. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's quite a hard thing to diagnose. PSG, assuming that the, the business model continues the way it is, will win the Champions League one day. But uh, but there's going to be, you know, there's going to be more casualties, including presumably the current head coach. All right, let's come to that 17-minute hat-trick next then. And the game itself, which uh, for all of us neutrals was absolutely fantastic. Funnily enough, at 2-0, I wrote a tweet which said, I love watching Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League, safe in the knowledge that they're not going to win it. It's so much fun because they are one of those teams. They absolutely flattered to deceive. I didn't see this comeback happening. And, and to be honest, it was, I mean, as, as, and we'll come to Karen Benzema and we'll come to Luka Modric, but it was mainly Paris Saint-Germain's doing. The first goal, Donnarumma, the goalkeeper, was he or wasn't he fouled Tom Clark by Karen Benzema? I think there's a case for saying that's one of those that would be given elsewhere on the pitch, as we sometimes do. In fact, sometimes we often do. My problem more is with Marquinhos, um, a player who I think, you know, kind of embodied everything that went wrong with PSG last night. An experienced player, the captain, he had an absolute stinker in that second half, at starting with that goal. You know, we were debating this before and we, we pressed record, weren't we? But goalkeepers these days playing the ball out from the back is, is a massive part of modern football. Donnarumma was given the ball on one angle. And how often do we see it? You open up your body and you hit the player to your right. And he was looking for Marquinhos, who, if you watch it back, had made no effort whatsoever to get into a position where Donnarumma could pass the ball to him. So he then opened his body up further to try and hit a pass probably to the right back. And that's where he gets closed down and maybe fouled, maybe just barged off the ball. But I have sympathy for Donnarumma in that sense, uh, rather than in the was it or was it a foul. It probably was a little bit soft, um, and that's probably why it wasn't a good, it wasn't given, and that's probably a good thing. But yeah, my my issue is with uh, Marquinhos, and so therefore I will have a bit of sympathy for Donnarumma in that sense. I agree with Tom. I understand Mauricio Pochettino saying it after the game. Of course, he would. You're looking for any um, 
anyone to really sort of lash out at. And uh, I, I can um, probably should have gone for his defence, really, because that's the more obvious target than the referee. But to be honest, though, uh, I think Karim Benzema is, even though it was put, that was put on a plate for him, his story is is really an absolutely remarkable one because, you know, we Ian quite rightly wrote in the in the preview to this game about uh, Kylian Mbappe and how this game centred around Kylian Mbappe and there were three parts to it because the the third leg was was the two clubs battling over his future and having him in the best years of his career, but then the guy who actually ends up being the protagonist of the story is at the other end of his career, but playing the best football of his of his life at Karim Benzema at 34. We seem to celebrate individuals, and I do I do think Mbappe is a very good team player. And but you get Messi, Ronaldo, Haaland. We we sort of lord these guys who are just machines, um, and of course they are team players. But people people like Benzema they're they're not they're not really put into that bracket they're not known for in a similar way to those players but he is he is of the top class on both sides of individual and the perfect team player i mean it's no coincidence that you get managers like zidane Mourinho, pellegrini angelotti all go through real madrid and stick with him as their striker i think Mourinho once said that Benzema was the the perfect striker. You had guys like Higuain, Morata, um, Luka Jovic go through there and expected to be sort of the successor. Doesn't happen. And this is a guy who he, you know, he's been nominated for the Ballon d'Or plenty of times, but he's never been, never really been near it. But this was it, it was a great night for him to be centre stage. Absolutely, it was. Uh, now third all-time top scorer for Real Madrid, Ian. How good was it to watch Karim Benzema and Luka Modric, another elder statesman, if you like, if that can be said to people in their mid-30s, providing, I mean, in particular for Modric, about a 10-15 minute spell of sheer wonder, setting up the second goal. In fact, two passes on the way to that second goal, one out wide to Vinicius, I think it was. And then the second, when the ball was recycled to assist Karim Benzema. And you can take us into the third goal if you want, but I'm sure Tom will want to talk about Marquinhos a little bit more. But yeah, <laughs> watching Modric and Benzema, Ian, how was that? Yeah, yeah, we'll just take a little break from the Marquinhos section for a minute. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, Modric, it's very hard not to love Luka Modric, isn't it? the footballer. He's, he's just, you know, he is just so... Every time you think, oh, the powers might be waning, he, he comes back and, and, and proves you wrong. And his his job last night was bigger than normal because there was no Casemiro, who is you know is absolutely essential really to to, to Madrid's stability and their shape. And, to, and before the game, Modric did the press conference and and he said, well, you know, I'll just have to do a little bit more covering. Then his other partner, Tony Cross, went off off now, and and I think hadn't been fully fit when he started. So, you know, Modric is now assuming a lot of the responsibilities of that very established midfield trio and then and then he he uh, uh, at 1-1 he sees the remontada is on and he surges through the pitch and it's just wonderful to watch and it was his long hair flowing behind him i don't want to get too cheesy about it but uh, and that pass you know the second pass the little threaded ball through to benzema for the 
for the second goal was just exquisite. And actually, just on Benzema, I don't know if anybody else thought this, but the minute that the first goal, he scored the first goal, press, pressing Donnarumma, being helped by Marquinhos, my mind went straight back to the the first Real Madrid goal in the 2018 final against Liverpool. I don't know if you remember, he pressed hard on Loris Carrius, who was also... His mind was going forward to how am I going to play this out before he thought, how am I going to control this? And that, well, that essentially set up Real Madrid's victory. So, you know, this is a very sharp guy. Benzema thinks exactly about how goalkeepers are going to behave. And, and you know, his aggressive press is an important part of his, his game. Yes. If you are a budding striker, please watch that goal back because what Karim Benzema does is he slows down, he jogs as if he's entirely disinterested and doing a bit of a lackadaisical press on the goalkeeper. And then when the goalkeeper relaxed, he accelerated to close him down. Very, very clever play, um, making Donnarumma think that there was no real pressure. And then suddenly, you know, getting him in all a bit of a tizzy and ended up with a ball in the back of the net. By the way, underrated finish for the first goal. I know it was a deflection for the second. Brilliant finish for the third, Tom. And what an assist from Marquinhos. <laughs> I, absolutely. I can't decide whether this is one of the best goals I've ever seen or one of the worst at Champions League level. <laughs> uh, initially, I saw it and thought, that's just absolute brilliance from Benzema to kind of take that first time. But then I was kind of like, it's almost a little bit like a five-a-side goal. You know, we've all we've all either had a go at that. Some of us might have even scored one of those. You know, a toe punt on the run straight into the bottom corner. Probably not done under as much pressure as Benzema was under. But again, I, I just can't. Watching back the highlights this morning, as I did before the podcast, I can't not just look at Marquinhos and think, what on earth is going through your mind again? He just seemed to completely shrink into his shell. It was like, I don't want to be here. Oh, God, the ball's coming at me. Kick it away, quick. It, it was it was dreadful. And I mean, that it's those moments from those kind of players. You can have as many Neymars and Mbappe in the world, but if you're Marquinhos defender, captain, experienced player lets you down in those big moments, then you're going to lose these kind of games. I'm not sure what happened. I mean, meltdown is the word, but um, Kimpembe probably should have got two yellow cards in the game. Paredes probably should have got two yellow cards in the game. The front three, Neymar, Messi, um, even Mbappe at times, um, just watching the game, it was... It was, it, I mean, it was strange. I mean, you just don't see teams 2-0 up away at the Bernabeu performing like that but you also don't see managers react to that situation in the way Mauricio Pochettino did how much pressure should he be under for them not coming through this tie from the position that they were in I'm gonna have to point it out I don't know a coach that leaves those three on the pitch together in that situation I mentioned it after the game at the Etihad earlier on in the season when against the run of play Kylian Mbappe had scored a goal for Paris Saint-Germain and into the second half, he left on those front players who do absolutely no tracking back. It doesn't make sense to me. And he's probably going to lose his job off the back of it, as far as I'm concerned. And maybe when he does, he'll explain his decisions. Tom Roddy, how much pressure is he under? Huge pressure. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you, Hugh, in that, that I, I would be amazed if Pochettino is still there next season. And watching this, I remember us chatting about it when he first got, got the job, first got appointed. And we were saying this isn't, this isn't going to be a, a good experience. And my opinion at the time 
was that it would put trophies in Pochettino's cabinet that he needed. That was what he needed. Go somewhere like Paris Saint-Germain where the league title is certain to go um, to go in your locker, um, even though it didn't, <laughs> didn't last year. I mean, it sh- should do this year. And the Champions League is where you either you either rise or fall and this is a this is a big collapse and i'm not sure it's it's been as successful as i thought it would be for him partly because of not winning the league title last year i mean it it really i think it really will damage his chances of getting the united job now because of this experience at the same time what what you do have to remember is that I don't think we we know what a good coach Pochettino is. We saw it at Tottenham, we saw it at Southampton. That that doesn't disappear. And at Paris Saint Germain, there are so many politics where the manager is definitely not just a football coach. Um, I mean, we've we've all heard so many stories about the way. Uh, players act there, um, about how people around players act, their directors. And it's not a good environment to be in for anyone. And it, it sound, it's a culture that has been created. I mean, there, there isn't, to be honest, there isn't really. From what you get told, there isn't really a culture at the club. And I think you can see that in the way Pochettino talks. You can see it in the way he operates. And I'm sure and I hope one day he'll talk about it. Maybe when he's Man United manager. <laughs> Ian, what do you think? Because he did reach the semi-finals last season, losing 4-1 to uh, Manchester City out in the last 16 this year. Do you see any future for him in Paris? I'm assuming that any breakdown in relationship or disapproval will be something they can live with until the end of this season when, when they will win the league, which will be, you know, that's an important trophy, as Tom said, for... Pochettino's CV, but but then you know, but then I I I can't see how he's going to continue. And it, and I would have said the same, you know, a week ago. There's been a dullness to him, certainly in public, um, for quite a long time, and a very strong sense that there's quite a lot about that club that he is not buying into, doesn't want to buy into, and doesn't want to show he's buying into. You know, there's there's a restraint about him. He's, he can also be very thin-skinned in public. There is a challenge to making this squad of players work, however talented they are. You know, there's, as you pointed out in the analysis of the game itself, there's a functional challenge about having these three superstars on the pitch, especially when you're when you're defending a lead and 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 you're not in possession a lot. And I don't think that would be a challenge for any coach. Also, you know, it's it's the nature of the club. Pochettino has come from two jobs, Southampton and, and Tottenham. In fact, three jobs, I'd say Espanol as well, where he was very important. He was very much the, the face of those clubs. And he, you know, he clearly had very, very strong relationships, both upstairs and with the squad of players. There's a sort of disconnect, I think, at Paris Saint-Germain, which is not necessarily to do with, with him at all. There's a high turnover of coaches there. The, the job itself, in a way, is just more disposable. And, and, and I don't think Pochettino is that sort of manager. I don't think, you know, I don't think he can, he can work in that, that sort of spare, functional way, at least, at least you know, the way he's developed so far. 
So yeah, like Tom, I would be astonished if um, if he's still in Paris in 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 July. I just think it's quite telling as well that we're talking about these players on the pitch, Benzema and Modric versus Marquinhos and others in the PSG team. And on the touchline, we're talking about Pochettino against Mr. Champions League, Carlo Ancelotti. And it was so kind of telling, I think, watching the reactions on the touchline. You've just got Mr. Cool, Ancelotti, sipping a coffee. Don't worry about it. I've been here before. No problem. We can turn this around. I just thought that was a massive, really telling thing to watch as a fan and as an observer and as a journalist to see that kind of narrative play out on the touchline. Ian, how how is Ancelotti being perceived? I mean, this is you were talking about the kind of the comeback, the uh, the miracle being on. You know, is is he being seen to be doing a good job? I agree with everything you said. You know, this was a this was a night to admire Ancelotti, and and down to specifics too. I thought the substitutions. Well, wise, and you know, this is a he brought on Camavinga and Lucas Vasquez, and then again, and, and and you just have to look at the bench, and you think, right, this is Ancelotti, he's chasing, a, you know, a, a potentially lost cause. There's Eden Hazard, there's Gareth Bale, you know, on you go, Lucas Vasquez. That's somebody who you know knows his own mind. Interesting, you said Ancelotti actually has been, by Ancelotti's standards, I think, quite surprisingly prickly. Recently, you know, he is he is very he's very calm and his you know he he is very good at giving a sense of authority and order. But he, he he's got a new catchphrase. He says the thing about this season is that everything we achieve, there's always a but. And he's talking about the the media and and the buts are well they wouldn't be so far ahead in the league if it weren't for Courtois. They wouldn't be only one nil down from the first leg in. In, in the Champions League last 16, if, he weren't, if it weren't for Courtois, which is probably true. But last night, you know, there was a little bit of there was a little bit of self-satisfaction. He said, "Yeah, no buts about this one." Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, he's 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 obviously in a very good position right now. At the same time, this is Real Madrid. There would be part of me that would be slightly surprised to see him there in September, just because it's Real Madrid. And also that that office, however good, however good experienced you are, is also slightly disposable. But how how fitting that um, it's against Paris Saint-Germain and he is probably the only manager in that chopping and changing who has actually left PSG on his own terms. He left for Madrid, didn't he? Whereas everyone else, you know, look at Thomas Tuchel getting sacked on Christmas Eve. And Pochettino is will probably be pushed out the door too, uh, even though he'd like to, probably like to jump as well. Angelotti, the only one who goes on his own terms. Yeah, and still up there, I think, in coaching terms, metronomic, if you like, you know, old experience head, and we'll see. I'm not quite sure watching the game that Real Madrid are going to have what it takes to win at the Champions League, but they were great entertainment. The same can't be said for Liverpool, who are a team who we think can go all the way in the competition this season. And let's quickly reflect on them because they were beaten at home, which doesn't happen very often, by Inter Milan. 1-0 on the night. They still went through 2-1 on aggregate. Um, I just wondered whether anyone thought this game showed an underlying fragility that maybe we haven't seen in Liverpool. Let's be honest, Mo Salah should have had a hat-trick in this game. They probably should have won it, dominated for large periods. But in the end, um, I think they were saved by an Alexis Sanchez red card as the tide was turning, and it often does in these big Champions League games. Um, Ian, I'll start with you. Maybe you've seen more of Inter than we have. What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I sort of 
small, slightly meaningless feather in the cap of Inter to, to, to get a, a win at Anfield. I was watching on television. I didn't, I didn't really feel that that Liverpool were in great danger, and I don't. And maybe that's maybe that's because yes, I've watched quite a lot of Inter and know that they're a good side, but they they haven't they haven't got the the depth of Liverpool and 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 possibly the self belief. And yeah, it, it was a very self destructive moment, which which some people would say is typical Inter, although it's probably not typical modern Inter. You know, to shoot themselves in the foot when there was a chance. I, I don't know. I just I I I felt Liverpool had the right degree of control. Even if another goal went in, they would have prevailed. Even if they didn't you know, have to pay the extra half hour, or whatever. I, I don't know about anyone else. I just you know I, I think Liverpool exude quite a lot of belief at the moment. As an editor and as a journalist, you often get a bit tired of manager quotes after these kind of games because you're you're looking for something. And I slightly rolled my eyes when Jurgen Klopp said the art of football is to lose the right games. But the more I reflect on it, he's absolutely spot on in the sense of Liverpool achieving this season, particularly in this competition. Probably no bad thing to kind of lose at home, reset and kind of refocus and also experience. You know, we've talked about Madrid, experienced managers, experienced players coming through that a, a, a tricky tie and not faltering in that kind of shock, oh my God, they've thrown it all away. That only stands you in good stead going forward in the tournament, I think. So I think Klopp was probably right. And as a Liverpool fan, any of them out there, I don't think any of them would be particularly worried by this, no. I think they went through pretty comfortably. I agree. It was a wonder goal from Lautaro Martinez, but um, but I, I didn't think Inter really threatened Liverpool. We looked pretty comfortable on the evening and go marching on alongside Manchester City. Goalless draw in one of their games, but of course a 5-0 win in the first leg against Sporting means those two Titans go through. Of course, we'll see Chelsea uh, and Manchester United in action next week. And a little bit of a theme on those two clubs coming up as well. We'll discuss Marcus Rashford's future and, of course, those sanctions handed out to Chelsea and their owner, Roman Abramovich, on the Game Podcast. Of course, if you're enjoying it, make sure you rate us, leave us a review, and make sure you're subscribed. Well, the big news that came in just before we started recording today's podcast, Chelsea FC owner Roman Abramovich is one of seven oligarchs today sanctioned by the UK government over Russia's invasion and war with Ukraine, of course, due to reported alleged links with the President Vladimir Putin. What does this all mean then? Well, essentially, Chelsea can keep playing. In terms of their games, season ticket holders only can go to games and those who have already purchased tickets. There won't be more tickets on sale. Um, Players will still be paid. The club will still be in receipt of TV money and money from other clubs. They can pay other clubs as well, but that only comes from existing deals. No new deals. No merchandise will be on sale from this point. There won't be player transfers. No new contracts will be issued at the club. Away tickets can be sold by opposing clubs. And today, the big one, the government would need to give special dispensation for the sale of Chelsea. No money can go directly or indirectly to Abramovich. 
Martin Ziegler, our chief sports reporter, joins Tom Clark and myself on the game. How big is this news, Martin, and what does it mean? I think it's massive news. It's the sort of thing that Roman Abramovich and Chelsea have been dreading. Uh, I think they've known it's been like hanging over his head, and now um, that the sword has fallen. So I think he tried probably to sort of get a, buy himself some time by saying he's going to sell the club to the proceeds going to charity. This idea of the stewardship of the club being run by a charitable foundation. The time has run out and now they're in a real fix. They can't sell the club under, under the existing license the government has set up. He can't sell it. Very restricted into what they can do um, in operating the club. And the, yeah, it's, I mean, this runs until May the 31st. I imagine they're hoping they can limp through to the end of the season and see what happens beyond that. The sale of the club is something that Roman Abramovich, I think, wanted to do as quickly as possible before in the event of this exact thing happening. But what does it mean for Chelsea's future and that sale in particular? Will there be a rush sale with this special dispensation? Will the value, the amount that the club is up for sale for be drastically reduced to essentially mean the paperwork is transferred between Roman Abramovich and any new party. And then does that mean that if someone does get Chelsea for a cut price, the Chelsea that we have come to know is now gone? I think it's quite difficult to, to, to know exactly. But I think you know, what, what we do know is that it, it can't be sold at the moment. And if the government does provide another licence to allow that to happen, that's going to be some time, some time away. It will need to go through the sort of the, the, the fine detail of all the accounts. And I, I think this idea of the money going to a charitable foundation linked to Abramovich, I don't think that will be allowed. I think that would, that would, that would be sanction busting. So I, what happens then with all the proceeds of the club? And yeah, I mean, you know, people are interested, you know, it, you know this is a club which has made itself a, a powerful force in European football, but that has always been funded by Abramovich, who most years has sort of covered any cash losses. So are people willing to do that to, to keep the club at their place in, in, in their spot? I, I think this is a sort of probably a turning point in the club's fortunes, at least in the short term. They limbo, essentially with this this license and this sanction then? Yeah, completely. Completely in limbo. Um, and they're sort of stuck there. And we all hope that the, the war in the Ukraine ends quickly and then perhaps things can move on for the club. But I think for, it must be a very worrying time if you're a Chelsea fan, that's for sure. As I say, we've come very familiar with this powerhouse of a club in the shape of Chelsea under Roman Abramovich. And I can't imagine what it would like it is like for the fans today. Even the players in the squad hearing this, do you call your agent and, and is it an exit strategy as soon as possible? There are some big names in that Chelsea squad. It doesn't look now like Antonio Rudiger will sign a new contract because he can't. Andreas Christiansen, although he was reported to already be leaving, um, that new contract won't be on the table anytime soon. These players definitely need to look at their futures elsewhere as soon as as possible but it does change the legacy of the owner as well and there are some saying today you can't exclude this we've said so much about Roman Abramovich over the last 10 days as soon as he put the club up for sale but you can't exclude today's actions from his legacy in English football and his legacy as an owner in the game as well this could easily be seen as one of the darkest days for English football that someone we allowed into the game has been sanctioned in this way over and we'll say alleged 
links to something so shameful. Well, I mean, don't, we don't need to say link, alleged, do we? Because it's down there in black and white in the government document. I just don't want to get sued, Marty. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I think they might go after the British government before you, Hugh. But, uh, yeah, always, always good to be on the, uh, on the side of caution. Uh, but, yeah, Chelsea have, throughout um, the, the nearly 20 years he's, he's been in, in charge and, and owned the club, have sort of benefited from his sort of continuing financial support. Even when they've been making profits on paper, they've still been putting money into the club, which has sort of allowed them to, to compete for the top players. What does a new owner want from Chelsea when they're eventually allowed to buy it? Do they want to buy it as an investment? Do they want to buy it as a sort of status symbol? Or do they want to do it to try and make some money? Once you try and do it to try and make some money, then that becomes very difficult in terms of, pumping money into the club because you you know what you're trying to do is you know reduce your expenditure and increase your income isn't it tom what do you think this means for the chelsea fans who are going to have a different experience going to watch their club but there also is the you know in many ways there's a moral decision as well for those fans to make it's become clearer and clearer you know from the uk government certainly about their owners links to the war in russia i mean even if you've got a season ticket are they still going to be out there supporting the, the club and the players? Do you think they will? Do they see Abramovich as something separate to, to the team? It's a very difficult dilemma, isn't it? And it's one we've had with when we've discussed the new, new owners at Newcastle and things like that. You know, Abramovich's time at Chelsea has brought great, great success. I mean, Chelsea have won so many trophies, almost as many as Martin won at the Sports Journalism Awards the other night with his three, <laughs> th- three, three award-winning moments, which was uh, absolutely superb and fully deserved. So I think that in some respects will mean that Chelsea fans will want to stick by the players and the club because I wonder whether, and I don't know whether Martin would agree with me on this, in a strange way, yes, Hugh, you say that this links Abramovich and the club to the war in Ukraine and to everything that's going on. I wonder whether some fans might see it as actually distancing him and might create a bit of a kind of mentality of, well, we're in this season ticket holders by all accounts reading up and I get the privilege of reading Martin's copy in my email queue before it goes on the website even, but season ticket holders still being able to go to games. I wonder whether that might kind of create a mentality of we have to stick by the players and the manager and the club itself, even if our owner is being um, sanctioned in this way. I don't know whether you'd agree, Martin. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know. I mean, Chelsea supporters just have put a statement out saying that they note the developments with concern and that they they, they implore imploring the government to conduct a swift progress process to minimise the uncertainty over Chelsea's future, and they're saying they want supporters to be given a golden share as part of the sale of the club, which is quite interesting. I.e., so that you know this is an idea that was raised in the, by the in the Tracy Crouch review that supporters you know would have be able to have a veto over such things as the sale of the club, move moving of the stadium, those sort of major decisions. So interesting if the, the government takes that up as well. Martin, Hugh, Hugh mentioned kind of. Play- players and calling their agents and things. But am I right in reading that it's not necessarily true that players can kind of jump ship, if you like? Is that is that true? Because you were talking about what a new owner might, what kind of club you might come into. Is there 
conceivably a scenario in actually the playing staff, the squad, will be as high quality as it is now because whilst they can't buy any players, they also can't sell any. Is that true? Well, they can't give any. Couldn't give a new contract to Rudiger, for example. Right. And Andres Christensen, they couldn't give a new contract to, and so they would definitely lose those players mm. because they, they would have to go somewhere else. That is, if the license is extended. At the moment, it only runs until May the 31st. So uh, we wait to see what will happen beyond that. We shall see. We shall see. Massive news concerning Chelsea today. And uh, as I said, it just broke. And we're going to get more clarification, I think, on exactly what it does mean. I'm sure more will come out very soon. I should mention what Tom has just remarked on, Martin, while we have you with us. Great moments, sports writer of the year, sports news reporter of the year, scoop of the year at the Sports Journalist Association Awards, the SJAs, which is massive in our industry. Uh, there was even a tear in your eye, Martin. I've got to reveal that to the listeners. It was an emotional <laughs> moment for you. And and the scoop that you won it for was the European Super League as well, to be specific on that. I know we haven't got time because you're so busy today to talk about all the details of the scoop, but just tell us why it meant so much to you to win that that big Sports Writer of the Year award, which is so coveted? Well, um, I'm quite long in the tooth uh, compared to people like Tom. So, yeah, I, I was first nominated for a, a, an award in 2004. And I've been nominated many, quite often since for various different things, but I've never won one. So it's, uh, you know, to use an American sport expression, something like 15 and zero. So it did mean a lot to me. And... I had high hopes of, of, of the getting the scoop of the year because I thought, you know, obviously it was such a massive story. And then to get the Sports News Reporter of the Year was, was really superb. I, but I had absolutely no inkling that I was going to win this overall thing. And I, I, didn't, I didn't even think it was a sort of, it didn't even enter my head as it being a possibility. Or And so I was completely over, I'd sort of prepared for the other ones, but I was completely overwhelmed with that. And I, it just, uh, yeah, I, I struggled. I struggled to speak. <laughs> 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 the other question I had for you, because I know there are people who are aspiring sports journalists who listen to the podcast. What are one of the two or three key things, maybe one key thing that you've learned along the way in your career? Making contacts is very important. And I always think there's no point trying to drum up a story to be something that it isn't. Because actually that can that sort of can annoy your contacts. So you you can write negative stories about your contacts. I mean I do a lot and you know they sometimes they don't like it. But as long as you're sort of fair and accurate, that's fine. And they and they you know appreciate that. And I mean like I got a uh, I got a text message from uh, afterwards from from the chief executive of one big sports governing body saying well done. And I said uh, I said oh thanks very much and we'll uh, I'll. I'll speak to you soon. And he said, oh, I hope not, because you, know, you only ever call when there's a problem. <laughs> uh, Martin, congratulations once again. Absolutely fantastic from you. Three big awards at the SJAs. And we could have spoken on and on and done maybe a special podcast about your career. But thank you so much. Unfortunately, we were going to do more, but the Chelsea story has taken over today, unfortunately. But a, a real pleasure to have you with us once again. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Well, since we last spoke, Marcus Rashford of Manchester United, it's reporting, is considering his future, unhappy with his game time, under Ralph Rannick. Since he played the whole of United's draw at Newcastle back on the 27th of December, he has started just two of their 11 Premier League matches since and only unavailable once due to injury. Uh, He was an unused substitute in their 4-1 defeat at Manchester City. And after we spoke on the podcast last time, the news came out. It hasn't been denied on social media. For me, that's a big one because we know Rashford likes to come out and poo-poo stories, doesn't he? He hasn't done it with this one, so maybe he is considering his future. Tom Roddy, is it firstly right that this story has come out? Because there have been a lot of leaks at Manchester United. And secondly, is Rashford right to be considering his future? Well, clearly the right questions have been asked about Rashford's situation because that the numbers that you just highlighted about his appearances and and I, I think this has been bubbling away for a little while if I'm honest with with Rashford I think his situation has been a little un, unsettled for for a while um and knowing that there's a world cup at the end of this year and you see other players in his position performing I can I can understand the frustrations the story coming out it's just it's just an ugly situation at, at United at the moment it's a it's a very messy club and it maybe it's not the right place to be for him but where where is I mean you hear you hear of interest from Paris Saint-Germain well <laughs> I don't I don't think that improves the situation any any better it's tricky because you always probably because of coming through the academy you 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 sort of associate him entirely with that club and you you think he's the future of it but we haven't really seen Rashford at his best for some time now and maybe it's justified that he he hasn't been starting those games i mean f- i think it's five goals in 24 appearances and you're seeing it, it, the the thing as well is that you're seeing united Jaden Sancho is now performing in the way that we sort of expected him to when he signed. He was the big summer signing and he is now performing in the way we expected him to. And Rashford can't get in the team. The story dropped just after that game. That that's that's not the best timing at all. And it didn't look great, but and it speaks volumes that he hasn't come out and said anything about it. But I, I don't. I still don't actually see him leaving. Oh, really, Tom? What do you think about this? Because his trajectory has slowed, Marcus Rashford, definitely. And I, I wonder why that is. Is that because of the number of managerial changes there have been at, at United? Is it all on Rashford? Yeah, I mean, you use an interesting word there in terms of trajectory and talking about a player's progression. I was I was looking at some of the stats beforehand. Marcus Rashford is twenty four. Um, even just if looking at the Premier League, he's played one hundred and ninety seven games in the Premier League for a 24-year-old that's quite a lot only four only five forwards have played more games in the Premier League since he made his debut and even then Roberto Firmino and Jamie Vardy with 205 games at the top for that list so you know you're, you're not talking many games off being a forward who's played the most games and then also I was reflecting on you know another great English forward you probably can't say Rashford is great yet but Harry Kane 
who's 28, he's got four years on Rashford, and yet he's only played 267 Premier League games. So he's only played 60, 60 more games than, than Rashford or so. And you, you talk about kind of pro- career progression, you do wonder whether it's, it is as simple as those managerial changes and just being a bit, you know, completely flogged in some respects and kind of having a lot of pressure put on him um, he was seen as the golden boy of Manchester United. He obviously does wonderful things off the pitch um, in terms of being a kind of a representative of young people and footballers in terms of what you can do with your uh, profile. I, I, I just, I, I can't not find myself feeling a bit sorry for him. We know Paul Hurst wrote a story recently in which uh, he'd got intel to say that Rashford kind of feels he's been a little bit let down by the club and by managers in that he's not had his, you know, his manager who has really guided him and made him the player that he is. When you think about Raheem Sterling and Pep Guardiola and what he did for his career, we've talked about Pochettino, would Harry Kane be the player he is without, without Pochettino's time at Tottenham? And Rashford hasn't really had that. You know, he was the symbol of the, the one bright spark of the Van Gaal era. He was the young player who came through under him, had a difficult relationship with Mourinho it was briefly the kind of leading man again for Solskjaer, but again, played a lot of games, dealt with injury. You know, by all accounts, finding it tricky to um, to gel with Ralph Rangnick as a coach. And also, he's probably one of the many Manchester United players who we're led to believe is saying, what's going on? Who is my manager? And, you know, all those factors just find me, it leave me feeling a little bit sorry for Rashford. Um, I agree with Tom. I don't necessarily see him leaving provided the next manager who comes in is someone who can do some of those things. Bit of an arm around the shoulder, bit of direction, put a bit of faith back in him as a player. You know, it was 24 is still very young for a forward, but it, it's, it's a really pivotal moment in his career now. But you mentioned something. This is really his first time out of the team in his career. You know, he has played a lot of games. And as soon as he's a bit off form and as soon as he gets dropped, it's in the papers that he wants to leave the club. And that is, for many fans unacceptable that last bit as well that tom said maybe absolutely spot on you know the arm around the shoulder and everything i totally understand what you mean hugh the sort of you know just at the moment everything goes wrong i'm off i'm out of here um i'm not happy i I totally understand the the upset around it but that arm around the shoulder and boosting his confidence I, I think probably is key because it was it was after i think it was after the west ham game uh, only a few weeks ago now, when he when he did score the goals that Rash um, that Ranić was talking about Rashford and how he had all those the, the qualities to be the one of the best strikers in English football and and that he is uh, and that he's a modern striker. But it was interesting that he said he he focused in on confidence and he said it's all about confidence for strikers and now it is all about boosting those levels and keeping them up for um, for for Rashford and to, to keep on going from there. And of course he hasn't, but I, I just, it was interesting that he picked that out to say. Um, so clearly, clearly that has been an issue as well. Mm. It's an interesting one. I, I, listen, if he's not a local Withenshaw lad, if he's not English, I think we're saying he he joins the clear out of Manchester United, doesn't he? Especially being such a highly paid player who isn't even in the starting lineup. You know, people talk about overhaul. I think he would be on the list if he was, you know, French or German. 
I completely agree with that. And I, you know, I touched on that. That definitely comes in. You know, I'm I'm from Salford, just outside Manchester, and I find myself. It definitely was a part of my answer when I was talking about all the things he'd done off the pitch. Because you, you, you can't not like the guy, can you? In terms of the things he's done, taking on this government as he did, you know, looking out for young children and some of the worst off in our society. It, it has to come into play. We talk about footballers, you know, not being great representatives. He is fantastic. But what I would say to that point of view is if that next manager can reinvigorate him and re-energize him, then he really can be a an, a symbol again for the Manchester United going forward. You know, some of those players that you're probably alluding to there, Hugh, they're not they're not at that stage in their career. They're a bit older or even, you know, at the end of their career as Cristiano Ronaldo is. But it's such a big thing that, yes, you probably could justify saying performances alone, forget the local lad, you could get rid if the next guy can bring him round, that would be a massive thing on and off the pitch for Manchester United. Ian, just finally on this, we've we've seen newspaper reports. Um, Paris Saint-Germain's been mentioned already, but Barcelona as well might be interested uh, in Marcus Rashford. Who knows? That might just be paper talk. But but how does the continent perceive Rashford on the biggest stage? Could he contribute to a, a big club outside of England? Yes, I think so. We've heard from Marcus Rashford quite a lot for a young player you know he was he was quite insistent at one stage about you know not being played in the right position and so on so you know were he to go anywhere I imagine he would tackle it head on and 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 not be in any way overawed by by going to a new place and and you know you mentioned his peers you mentioned Raheem Sterling at the moment you know he need only look at Tammy Abraham who's 23 years old was very attached to, to one club throughout his career and and has made an, a brilliant success of leaving Chelsea, leaving England, going to Roma, who, who are not a hugely successful or hugely well-balanced club. And, and, you know, he's an absolute idol there. So, you know, that's, that, that's, that's the kind of model that any young English player who might be a bit restless should look for. In a word, then, Ian, should Rashford leave? It, it depends where he's going to go. And, you know, it, and it really does depend a lot on who does Marcus Rashford talk to at Manchester United now about the kind of reassurances or actually perfectly legitimate questions about, you know, what's the strategy here? You know, it's, it, there is a vacuum there. I'm sure, I'm sure Aaron Fletcher would be, would be helpful in that sense, but you know, there's there's a there's an authority gap, isn't there? And you have to you have to feel for any player trying to plot their career at Manchester United. Sorry, to answer your question, Hugh, should he leave? He should go somewhere better organised if he's going to leave. Okay, good points made, Tom Clark. No, he shouldn't leave. There you go, Tom Roddy. Uh, if you want one word, then no. <laughs> if you want to say more, go ahead. I mean, Ian's already broken the mould. Well, it's, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But it would, but it would be exactly the same as um, as what Ian as what Ian said, really, because it can't, it just can't be. I don't think it can be Paris Saint Germain. I think it just it collapses even further. And I do. I, Tammy Abraham is a perfect example to point out. Uh, at the same time, they're not. I don't think Tammy Abraham left Chelsea in the same way in the same way that Marcus Rashford would leave Man United. I don't think he was on the same level at that moment. It wasn't a huge surprise to see Tammy Abraham go to a club like Roma. I think it would be with Rashford. I think he is still, he would he would still be looking for 
and expect clubs around the, the top of the Champions League, the elite in Europe, to be playing for. And, and to be honest, maybe a, a Roma is more suited. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Hugh, you're a United fan. I'll allow you 10 words. Well, listen, it depends what Manchester United are going to do in the future. Um, I think Manchester United are going to be in a phase for four or five years where they try and bridge the gap to the biggest and best clubs. We've we've heard John Murto speak about uh, wanting to appoint a manager that can do that. I think Rashford can definitely be part of a squad that does that, that get, gets itself, you know, regularly into the Champions League, maybe last eight within the next sort of five years, last four, who knows what can happen in the Premier League. You want to get closer to the biggest clubs. There'll have to be loads of transfers in that period of time. And it depends whether they can cash in on Rashford and make an improvement, which I think they probably could, or whether they think they need his character and his love of Manchester United to be within the squad. But ultimately, it's down to Rashford because... um, I've said this for a long time. He would not start in the front three of an elite 11. He wouldn't. Um, and if you look at the front threes around the best clubs in the world, they are seriously elite. You look at the impact even that someone like Luis Diaz has made at Liverpool, even Diogo Jota. You know, these are not players who we would have said are elite forwards in world football. They produce. And ultimately, Rashford currently does not produce. And um, if you don't do that, you shouldn't be anywhere near you know, the starting lineup of a top team. So so there you go. You know, it's all up to him really as far as I'm concerned. Listen, more for us to discuss. We'll be talking about our favourite veterans next. So not long to go on the game podcast now, just five or so minutes to talk about what we've seen so far this week. Listen, there are some brilliant players who just got me thinking about this. We've seen Karim Benzema, wow. Robert Lewandowski, 40 goals a season once again. Luka Modric rolling back the years. And let's not forget Scott Carson, absolutely brilliant for Manchester City in the Champions League this week. So it got me thinking about those great veterans, you know, those that we we thought were past it, but continue to produce their absolute best. And um, you can get thinking about it as well. But um, I've asked the gentleman, Tom Clark, I'll start with you. Modern day, I think you do well to, to beat uh, Luka Modric, I think, not just for his performance last night. He's always kind of, he's always had that. Hold on a minute. We've spoken at length about Modric and how brilliant a player he is. The king of football leagues on this podcast, Tom Clark, has not given us a football league veteran. This is insane. <laughs> I know. Well, I didn't think. I thought. I thought it wasn't allowed. I thought we were talking in the scope of the Benzema's and the Modric's. No, 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 my just your favourite. Come on, your favourite veterans. You know, in the in the last few years, I, the amount of times I mentioned Kevin Ellison in terms of being a football league veteran <laughs> down the years, is pro- I've probably reached my Kevin Ellison quota. I would say. It wasn't quite a veteran, but old school wise, two names came to mind when I was thinking about the Premier League. Teddy Sheringham, in terms of performing and being kind of very much that same player that he always was all the way through his career, right to the very end and performing and playing. And I often reflect such an underrated player in my opinion. But in terms of cult figures as well, JJ Okocha's time at Bolton, that was about, I mean... That was just absolutely joyous to watch, wasn't it? In terms of, he probably, I think he played a bit longer after he left Bolton. So I don't know whether that discounts him as well. But yeah, if uh, if I'm not allowed to riff briefly on Modric again, and I'm not going to mention Kevin Ellison, then I'll go Sheringham and Okocha. Tom Roddy, favourite veterans? I was tempted to go for uh, Jean-Louis Buffon, 
simply because of just the length of his career. But then I feel it's a little unfair to go for a goalkeeper um, because, you know, they, 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 there's so many of them because of the position they play, David James, Brad Friedel. Um, so I don't think, I don't think they can really be counted as, as veterans. So I'm going to go for Paul Scholes uh, because of, because of the fact he came out of retirement after a year away and managed to play and just dominate a Premier League and win the Premier League title after coming back um, as if he'd never been away and as if he wasn't 38 years old. Um, and it does tend to be, in a similar way to, to Modric, it does tend to be that area of the field where class just shows, it, it separates class, doesn't it? You realise the real quality in that area of the field. Ian, what about you? Favourite veteran? Well, a, a couple of shout-outs to, to, to current uh, veterans. Um, Franck Ribéry, who you will, may remember. No angel for a lot of his career. Bit of a maverick. But still very much going strong at Salernitana, who are an absolute disaster club in Serie A. They nearly went out of business in December. They, they're being thrashed regularly. But he, he is playing there. He's wearing the captain of the armband. He's not. He's clearly not there for the money, and he's there for the joy. And I think being there for the joy is is or very conspicuously there for the joy is 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 maybe a criteria for selecting our veterans. So with that in mind, um, shout out for Dani Alves, thirty eight, oh, just yeah. returned to Barcelona, <laughs> won absolutely everything except the World Cup. Has taken a pay cut, being Dani Alves, because he talks all the time. Has told us all about that. Um, and you know he 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 is he is still the the Duracell powered Danny Alves that he was when he was eighteen, twenty eight, thirty five. You know there's there's he just fizzes with energy and still fizzes with energy and still plays you know nine different positions on the pitch in in the same game. So so he's my favourite current veteran I think. My favourite um, who thankfully came to Manchester United towards the end of his career. You know, never did the great stuff at Manchester United, but it was just great to see him in a shirt. You know, I think he was about 36, 37 when he came for Man United, only played seven league games, but actually won his Champions League, the thing that his career deserved at the age of 35, I think, um, having left Celtic on a free and gone to Barcelona. It is Henrik Larsson for me who I absolutely adored throughout his years at Celtic, brilliant in a Sweden shirt as well, assisted both goals in that Champions League final as well off the bench and got his moment that I think his career deserved as well. So absolute legend has to be Henrik Larsson. Um, listen, gentlemen, thank you for being with me. Really enjoyed that. Tom Roddy, Tom Clark and Ian Hawkey on the game podcast. Um, listen, Chelsea fans, fingers crossed um, that the club continues beyond the end of this season. We'll have more on that for you, I'm sure, in the next episode of the game. But if you want to hear uh, some more great journalism, read some more great journalism from the likes of Martin Ziegler, then make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. So check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game we'll see you on monday enjoy your weekends